Welcome back to the Whitley Whiskey Cast, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is our final episode of season two. Um, Ooh. Right? We'd like to welcome you to the cast. I'm DJ Gagnon, as always, here with my wonderful co-host, Mark Rossetti. I'm sad. It's the season finale. I'm sad, too, but we already spoiled it. We're coming back for season three, folks. I know, but it, I still got to be a little sad. <laughs> well... Before we get too, too sad and maudlin in our cups, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you've been up to this week, bud? Well, I started, um, I'm, I'm all discombobulated because, you know, we'll, we'll, we're recording on a Monday, which we don't normally do. And I work today on a Monday, which I never do. <laughs> um, I've been working Tuesday through Saturday for like the last 15 years of my life, so the rare occasions when I have to work a Monday, I'm all messed up to begin with, plus we're recording tonight, so I don't know which way is up. <laughs> but at some point this week, I did start the Infinity Bottle. Oh, amazing. So uh, I've done two. They're a week apart. I actually topped it off today. I'm trying to do it every Monday, because, again, normally I don't have anything going on Mondays, this week being the exception. Uh, but there are now seven different varieties. We started with one, then I added four in the first batch, and now two here in the second batch, and I'm going to space them out over a week. So there's seven different varieties of whiskey chilling. I've written down the dates and the uh, amounts and the order that they were put in. So uh, we'll try it. It's all kind of the same color now, which is kind of interesting, because they weren't when they went in. <laughs> uh, and we'll see how it tastes. You know, that'll be at some point in season three. I want it to rest for a little while, but at some point for season three, we'll crack it open and see what it tastes like. But uh, we're going to keep going, and once it gets full, we'll see what happens. I'm excited for this. We'll have to do like a blog post or something when we get close to season three to kind of give Definitely. everybody a here's what Mark did. I did a thing. <laughs> that was for you, Lou. What about you? What did you do this week? Um, yeah, it was kind of a weird week. I, I like how we're at the end of two complete seasons and a bunch of specials, and that question still throws you. <laughs> it does. It still <laughs> baffles me. I never remember what I did. Um, ADD is great, folks. Uh, no, I uh, since we last recorded, I got the first jab for for COVID nineteen. Yay! Yep, so uh, I think actually by the time we start season three, we'll both be completely immune. Um, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, so there's that's always a plus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so season three, who knows? We may actually get an in-person episode. God, I hope so. Oh, that would be so good. Uh, but other than that, I um, since coming out as non-binary in December, I found myself kind of weirdly becoming a bit of an activist in a way that I never really thought I would. Um, and so I kind of joined the employee resource group for, for all things rainbow colored and pride at, at uh, Liberty. And I'm now one of like five people on their education panel who uh, is responsible for putting out like regular blog posts. Like we're gearing up for Harvey milk day in May. Um, I, you really are starting a multimedia empire. I really am, yeah. Uh, I, I started off at the beginning of the year recording an episode of the internal Liberty Proudcast, and uh, now I'm, uh, I, I'm coming up. We're starting, I think, on, in October. 
we're gearing up for coming out monologues, so I'm I'm writing that up for myself now. It's it's all going to be good preparation for for uh, season three. But other than that, uh, not a whole lot. Got got caught up with my my siblings this week, and uh, there's been a lot of family chatter. So that that's been kind of nice getting. I think everybody's kind of at the point where they're getting vaccined or about to get vaccined and all sorts of good things there. I'm, I'm hoping to see all of my siblings in person in the next few months. Yeah, since I, I've had the first shot and, you know, the old man already had his second, he and I were actually able to go out to a flea market during the week, um, which was just nice to actually go out anywhere. Nice. Did but you find I, the fleas? Yes, I found many fleas. Uh, they took much blood. Uh, but I'm going to put a picture up on uh, Facebook and the various social medias. I got these. I, I've seen the actual lamps before. Basically, you know, people take wine bottles and champagne bottles and liquor bottles, and they put all these LED rope lights and things in them, and they make like a little bottle lamp out of them. Uh, we used them for a few of our uh, events at Historical Society, so I have a few of them laying around. But I've never actually seen because I've never really looked, admittedly, just the guts, the lights and the plastic corks and everything. And wouldn't you know who won the pony? There was a guy there who had three of them. He said, make me an offer. I said, three for five. He goes, get them out of here. (laughs) So I took them home. They all work. They all have fresh batteries in them. And Lord knows I've got enough bottles here. So (laughs) we're going to start making art. I, I have to know what bottles will be worthy enough to become lamps. Well, the first one I could tell you, because I was looking at it not long before we went on the air, because I think it would look awesome with the metal crest it's put on it, for lack of a better term, uh, Monkey Shoulder. Oh, nice. Monkey Shoulder's probably going to be the first one, you know, those three enamel, metal, whatever they are, monkeys with lights behind them, I think would just look awesome. That's fantastic. Otherwise, we'll see whatever, you know, the creation hits me. That that's awesome. I I'm actually kind of thinking that the uh, the first bottle I would turn into one into a lamp is the whiskey I'm drinking this week because it's got a really fun bottle. Well, that's a great segue. <laughs> it is, Mark. What are you drinking this week? I'm going to save mine. Well, uh, I am drinking, uh, without question, the most expensive bottle of whiskey I've reviewed so far in the podcast. Uh, This was one of my stimulus splurges, and this is Journeyman Distillery's Not a King Rye. And uh, this is batch number five. It's it's actually numbered. I I just mark out when I get a numbered bottle. (laughs) Uh, Batch number five, bottle number 1979, for those of you playing the home game, not that it really matters. And Journeyman is interesting because... uh, it is a small distillery out of Michigan, but the Not a King is a limited release every year that they release on President's Day because it is based off of one of George Washington's recipes from Mount Vernon. Uh, Washington was a big distiller, for those of you who don't know. Not only did, you know, was he a general, was he a president, was he a diplomat? No, he, he was a big distiller too. And uh, by 1799, in fact, Mountain Vernon was the biggest distillery in the United States of America, the fledgling United States of America, producing a whopping 11,000 gallons of rye, or, well, whiskey in general, mostly rye, a year, which, wow. you know, every other distillery does in an hour today. But still, uh, 
Interestingly enough, if you go to Mount Vernon, uh, like I have, and you know lots of other people have, you could see his notes. He had his brewing notes in there. Uh, he liked a lot of rye, much like myself. He liked a 65% uh, rye mash with about 30, 35% corn, and then he put some barley and a few other things there. Uh, Mountain Vernon obviously has, uh, I guess, patented, copyrighted, I, I always get those two mixed up, the recipe. Uh, they do super limited releases to cost thousands and thousands of dollars and only go to certain places, although there's a few places you can go and drink it. City Tavern in Philadelphia is probably the easiest. That's where I had it. Uh, but the Journeyman Not a King is their version of it. It's as close as they could legally get. <laughs> and so they make it every year. They release it on President's Day. And it is fucking fantastic. I um, love it. It's 90 proof. Uh, it's roughly 60-40. It's like 61-37-2, technically, if you really want the breakdown. Um, and they... They don't have an age statement on it, but they do claim that it's aged for roughly three years, for what it's worth. I don't, I don't care either way. Mm. Uh, but it is really, really smooth, and it is old-school whiskey. The nose smells like two things, straight rye and literally, and I'm not making this up, and DJ, you're probably going to pop on this, wooden lumber, planks. <laughs> <laughs> Like, go down the lumber aisle at the Home Depot. That's what it smells like. Oh, man. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, pretty juicy, pretty bitey right at the front. You get just a little bit of caramel. Then you just get wood and more wood. And then it dries out and you get that burn to it. And uh, finish off with some uh, pepper and some spices. And then there's just a little bit more wood. Uh, to put this into perspective, when I poured the glass, because this is only the second glass of it I had since I've got it on President's Day. I've been saving it. Uh, but when I poured the glass before we recorded, I said to the wife, hey, you want to try this? You know, this is the really good whiskey I have and blah, blah, blah. And she said, sure. And she took a sip and she made a face and she handed it back to me and goes, it tastes like you're drinking Listerine. <laughs> <laughs> so my wife's a Philistine and uh, Journeyman, not a king. It's fantastic. With all the taxes and excises we have in Pennsylvania, plus the shipping, it was about eight between eighty and eighty-five dollars. I've seen that if you could find it somewhere on the shelf, it's like fifty-five to sixty. So that's probably the way to go. But here, pay you have to ship it. So, what about you? What do you drink? What What is going to be your bottle lamp that you set us up with? Yes. Yeah, so my bottle lamp whiskey is uh, Angels Envy Bourbon. And I okay, really like I'm it. listening. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, the bottle is amazing looking. It's this tall, thin bottle. Um, uh, thin from the side, but nice and wide at the front and back. And uh, when you look through the bottle, through the whiskey, there's actually a pair of angel wings on the back of the bottle. So it would look really great as a lamp. And gee, I wonder why you like that bottle. I, wouldn't at all have to do with the fact that I have a tattoo of wings on my back. No. Um, but it's really good. It's uh, It kind of punches you in the tongue a little bit. Uh, most bourbons I've uh, found tend to tend to be a little bit sweeter and subtler on the palate. Uh, this one just, bam, gets you right in the whiskey, uh, peppery kind of. It's There's some vanilla. There's some like, dried fruits. There's, there's maybe... It's definitely... Um, kind of a toasty smell to it. 
that that kind of it's reminiscent of like maybe like a maple syrup or okay. honey, you know, something like that. So the nose is really nice. Uh, and there's definitely a little bit of that maple syrup in the palate, but it really, it hits you quick and then it's gone. Um, and it just kind of lingers off. It's a little bit sweet, uh, and it's aged in port barrels. So, uh, it's kind of got that, that porty aftertone to it. I I don't, I, I drink port like once a year, but. Uh, it, I'm not a big wine guy, but it, especially if we go out to a fancy place and they have a dessert drink menu, if there's port, yeah, line that shit up, whip it at my head. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of got that, it's got that thickness on the tongue that that is kind of characteristic of like a like a port finish or a sherry finish. And I, I, I it's definitely, I mean, that's a synesthetic phrase, right? It's not any thicker. It's not really syrupy. It's definitely liquid, but. There's something about aging in a in a port or a sherry cask that kind of gives it this a bit of a weight. I don't know if you feel the same way, Mark, but no, absolutely. I mean, you know, they teach us this, you know, in high school science class, grade school science class, but it's amazing just how porous wood is. Yeah. And how much it really does absorb and then later on dumps back out. I mean, it's the science behind it is really cool, even for, you know, a, a nerd like me that just locks himself in a library. <laughs> when when you get shit like that, it's like, oh, all right, I, I, I kind of get this, okay. Yeah, it, it's great. I, I love it. Uh, and, and because it was aged in port barrels, it's got this, the, the color of it is almost just copper. Ooh. Yeah, it, it's just, it's deep and dark. It, it's, you know, it, it, I, I would almost say stormy, except it's not really opaque in any way. Uh, 87 proof if you round up a little bit. So I think you went out on proof today. Um, <laughs> but it's really good. I, I, uh, I, I don't remember who recommended this to me, but um, somebody who knew we were doing a whiskey podcast was like, hey, add Angel's Envy to your list. So figured I would save it for the end of the season. So if you're listening and you remember that it was you who recommended this, uh, shout us out on social media and we'll uh, make sure to thank you. Yes, by all means. Uh, and for the record, you know, the only reason Washington's whiskey has a slightly higher proof is because they were still using it as medicine then. <laughs> you know, I mean, as Ben Franklin once famously said in... Uh, Beer, there is wisdom. In wine, there is truth. And in water, there is bacteria. Yeah. Because in the 1780s, there was. So good. So, shall we move on to whiskey news? I'm excited for whiskey news. All right. I have three little quick hitters here. Uh, The first one is, uh, I found this one this morning, actually, and I was just squeeing like a schoolgirl. So, if anyone's ears bled in the mid-Atlantic region, that was me. I'm sorry. (laughs) The oldest known bottle of whiskey on the face of the planet Earth is going up for auction, DJ. Oh, man. Now, do you want to take any guesses as to when this bottle is from? Without Googling it, just spit a year out. I want to say like early 1900s. Oh, no, 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 no. So, there is a label affixed to this, which I will read you word for word. This bourbon was probably made prior to the year 1865 and was in the cellars of Mr. John Pierpoint Morgan, 
kind of a big deal, Mm -hmm. from whose estate it was acquired upon his death. As far as as known, there were no bourbon distilleries in Georgia after the Civil War. Now, this is where it gets interesting. It obviously was uh, from Georgia, and so it's going up for auction. And these big-time auctions for anything, whether it be whiskey, whether it be art, whether it be cars, whether it be sports memorabilia even... Uh, Providence is very important. You know, you got to have your facts. You got to have your ducks in a row. So they went to my people. They went to the history department at the University of Georgia. And the professors actually took a very long, very skinny syringe, went through the cork and withdrew a sample from the bottle because this bottle is still sealed. Yeah. And there's actually uh, some photos here in this article. This is from uh, Food and Wine magazine that has this article up. And uh, there's some photos of the professor taking the sample. And they went and they actually uh, carbon dated it. And the thing with carbon dating is you only get a range. It doesn't give you an exact year. It's not an exact science. Mm -hmm. But it did give them a range. And the range for this bottle is between 1763 and 1803. All right. So I was definitely wrong. Well, so were they because, uh, you know, uh, before the carbon dating came back, they were looking at it and they were analyzing records of different distilleries in Georgia. And the oldest distillery in Georgia or the, the one distillery in Georgia that they thought it was from uh, ended around about 1850. It was a, it fell out of favor before even the war. So they were saying it was somewhere around 1845, 1850 that it comes out that it's actually four decades older than that, at least. Uh, so it's going to go up for auction in June. And here's the thing I can't understand. Uh, the most expensive bottle of whiskey ever sold was a scotch. It was some bog water, DJ. Yeah. And it was a 1926 bottle of McClellan. And that sold for just over $2 million. Jesus. Do you know what the auction house is estimating this friggin' 250 nearly year old bottle of whiskey to go for? Uh, I can't even... I mean, priceless. See, I thought the same thing. They're claiming it's only going to draw between 20000 and 40000 Why? I don't know. And I, I've looked for a few different uh, things, and I, I just I don't know. Um, and, you know, especially with the, the J.P. Morgan prominence and everything, I have a feeling it's going to go for higher than that. It probably won't break the record of $2 million, but I think that will easily get six figures uh, for that bottle. So stay tuned. You know, June, we ought to be up and running with Season 3, right in the middle of Season 3. Hopefully we'll have the numbers from that, and I could do a little follow-up. The second one, environmental news, DJ. I know you'll be into this. Mm-hmm. Now, I can never pronounce it, as you, if you listen to our Women's History Month episode, you know. How do you say, uh, what is it, Di- Diago, Diego? Diagio. Diagio. Okay, Diagio. <laughs> I, I can't pronounce it. I'm a linguist. Diagio is playing around with a nearly zero-emission scotch bottle. They are using biofuel, which means waste, in their uh, glass kilns. They are using recycled glass, and uh, they're using solar power in the facility. And so uh, the carbon impact of its bottle production is down 91% over a traditional bottle. 
Uh, so this quite literally is the future. Uh, this is the lowest carbon footprint glass bottle in recorded history, according to them and their partners with this Glass Futures Corporation. Uh, this is all a press release that uh, Diageo put out. The, uh, uh, the trial, they're basically, they're doing a trial with 175,000 bottles of black and white brand scotch, which I've never actually had, so I need to follow that up. Uh, but we are committed to creating a sustainable future for our business, and that includes looking for innovative new ways to make our bottles and packaging that greatly reduces the carbon footprint of all of our products, said John Aird, who's the senior packaging technologist, <laughs> which is a great name. Uh, the trial's the first step to decarbonize this aspect of the industry, and we still have a long way to go, yada, yada, yada. So they've, they're partnering with Glass Futures over the next 10 years to slowly introduce these bottles across their entire line. And they are also playing around with a 100% plastic-free paper, and paper is in quotation marks, base spirits bottle. They began this last year during the quarantine, and those trials are getting better, and they like their results. So, hey, kudos to them. We're going to have recycled bottles for our Johnny Walker, which means we'll be able to do it a lot longer. I like it. And it's really fascinating that Scotch is leading the charge here because Scotch is already, So traditional. It, it, well, it's, it's also one of the most green liquors out there. Because the uh, it is. the peat that they use to smoke the whiskey it is actually farmed sustainably in Scotland in a really interesting way. I read a couple of articles about it, and uh, they they only farm what they need from the bogs, and they skim only off the the top, so they're not actually damaging the growth of the bog, and they don't you know hurt the ecosystem. I think I read somewhere, and I might just be pulling this out of my ass, but I think I read somewhere that it actually, like, helps because it kind of takes some of the top layer off and lets more things flourish. Well, yeah, because you're letting the oxy- oxygen get down deeper, so that would make sense. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating to me, and, and it's, I mean, it's, I would say it's ironic, but it's kind of, it's the right step, right? Like, they, if Scotch... Uh, distilleries are the ones who are kind of leading the charge on sustainable, uh, you know, smoking elements, then of course they're going to lead the charge in the bottles. Yeah, and I mean, I, I quote ancient Rome way too much, I know, but adapt or die. Yeah. That's what it is. And uh, they're doing it, so kudos to them, and yay, more more scotch for us going forward. Um. And then one last piece, which I just was just dropped in my email box literally seconds before we went on the air. You've often heard me gripe on this podcast about Pennsylvania's, frankly, draconian <laughs> liquor policies. Well, they are doing another limited release lottery. And I have been sent the registration forms for this uh, because of all the political red tape and hoopla in this state. Particularly rare bottles of whiskey in different spirits are uh, cordoned out by lottery. You have to register. You have to give the state basically all your damn information. Uh, they put your name in a hat. They draw a name. And if they draw your name, you are given the opportunity to buy one of these bottles. Now, 
Uh, they are actually doing a whiskey and bourbon lottery this time, which is why I was forwarded the information by friend of the podcast and IT tech Dave. So thank you, Dave. Uh, the first thing when you click on it, the very first listing is a $400 bottle of bourbon. Oh, wow. And so, I mean, there's what? There's six here. There's six there. There's... Five there, so that's what, 17, 17 and 4 is 21, 21 and 5. There's 27 different types of limited release in this uh, uh, lottery here. Do you want to take a, uh, there is just under 13 million people in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hmm. There's like 12.9 something million. Of all of these 20 odd varieties of liquor, do you want to take a guess what the largest quantity available for the lottery is? I can't even begin. Four. Eighteen. Okay, good. (laughs) Uh, Most of them are only one to three. But there are a few that are 12. There are a few that are 18. The cheapest bottle on the list is $90. And again, that's not including tax or anything. That's just the MSRP. And the most expensive bottle is $2,500. Nice. So if you want Mark and I to buy one of these bottles to try, <laughs> send your money to. Yes, the lottery will be in early May. I probably am going to register just because I hate myself, uh, and we'll see what happens. But, yes, uh, send your donations to. We do have, well, I, I mean, I have PayPal. We both have Venmo, so yeah. it's just private messages. We'll figure something out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can private message us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we're at the thewittenwhiskeycast at gmail.com, so... You know, if you want to help uh, fund some some future bottles, let us know. Yes, uh, let us know, and we'll go from there. But that that's all we have for whiskey news. I, I'm not above shilling here. No, hell no. <laughs> well, that's that's awesome. Uh, last whiskey news of the season, and I'm glad we had three to go out on. Uh, but being that we're drinking buddies, and being that we are buddies who are currently drinking. Uh, we figured it would be nice to close out season two with a pick three of, you know, who would we want to drink with uh, if we had our choice, living or dead? Yes. So, Mark, do you want to do you want to start us off? I'll start us off and I'll, I'll explain my little methodology here. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, because I am a historian, all three of mine are dead. <laughs> Although that wasn't a uh, conscious choice. When uh, we first came up with this idea, it actually was uh, Brian's idea when he was here for Strategy and Whiskey. He was uh, giving us a few ideas, and we were talking back and forth with him. And when we, f- when we were like, eh, yeah, maybe we'll do that, maybe we won't. When we finally decided we were going to do this, I just gave myself a handful of ground rules. I said, pick the first three that pop in your head. Oh, no. Just whatever they are, good, bad, or indifferent, the first three that pop in your head. I'm so scared. With the exception that you can't, well, when I say you, me, I can't do more than one from a given time period or historical era. Just you don't want to have two people from World War II or two people from the American Revolution or whatever. You know, just try to spread it out a little bit. And... uh so that's what I did, and I, I kind of cheated because Washington would have been on the list, but we already talked about him with not a king. So <laughs> I, I kind of got three and a half in here. 
but the first one was the easiest. It literally was the first name that popped in my head, and it's the first name that I would give literally everything I own and then some to be able to just talk to, much less drink with. And that is, of course, my hero, the man, the myth, the legend, Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. KBO. KBO, K-G-O-M-C-H-T-D-D-L. We could go on and on and on. Uh, <clears throat> of course, he was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1940 to 1945 during the Second World War. And as everyone, not everyone, but as a lot of people often forget, he had a second term much later, 1950 to 1955, hmm. which didn't, didn't go so well. Uh, <laughs> Interestingly enough, he was a member of both the conservative and the liberal parties throughout his career, which, of course, they mean different things over in England, and we're not going to get into that, but yeah. it's just kind of a nice little segue. Um, he was a self-styled Renaissance man. He's a historian. He's a painter. He's a writer. Uh, he won a Nobel Prize. He's won several military medals. He's been knighted. He is one of less than 10, I want to say seven or eight. I don't know the number off the top of my head. Honorary citizens of the United States of America. That's not something we do very often, but mm. he's one of them. Uh, and he's a very big fan of brown liquors, brandy in particular. And he's a very big fan of cigars, Romeo and Juliet's in particular. Uh, so much so that there actually is a size of cigar named after him, the Churchill, mm. uh, which is kind of fun. There's a very famous uh, painting of him, portrait, which I believe it was, it may still be, his Wikipedia uh, page picture. So if you Google it, it'll come up, where he has this despicable scowl on his face. And this is in the middle of World War II, and so the painter wanted him to just be serious for once, and old Winston was half in the bag, as he was wont to do during the time. So in order to get him to get the look that he was going for, the painter simply reached over and ripped the cigar right out of his mouth. Yeah. And so he's scowling just as a, you know, as a little kid, he's pouting. Uh, he, you know, studied constantly. He fancied himself a master of many different things, which kind of bit him in the ass a few times. You know, during World War I, when he was Grand Lord of the Admiralty, some of his strategies didn't really work because uh, he's not a general and you know Garoppoli and a few other campaigns that were his idea were just bad and didn't work and unfortunately got a lot of people killed uh, but he more than anything else and this is going to sound very current American politics but bear with me here he more than anyone else had balls mm. he was not afraid he would go on, he would give these fantastic speeches. At the very least, he wrote them. Sometimes he was too drunk, and the one guy from the BBC who could imitate his voice went and did them, but we won't talk about that. Uh, you know, he was a great orator, and he gave the people hope. He just had it. He had flair. He had pizzazz. Uh, he was seen testing... Uh, a Tommy gun, you know, even before the Americans got into the war, we had the Lend-Lease Act. We were selling them weapons. We were selling them battleships and supplies and materiel. So we gave him a lot of Tommy guns, Thompson submachine gun. And there's a photo of him at a range holding a Tommy gun. And he's in a bowler hat and he's in a pinstripe double-breasted suit holding <laughs> a Tommy gun. 
and he looks like a fucking 1920s gangster. So the Germans got a hold of this photo, and they wrote up some propaganda, and during the Battle of Britain, when they were bombing the city constantly, blitzing the entire country, and London in particular, they were dropping not just bombs, but these pamphlets, and they were saying, you know, look at this man who's your leader. You're run by a gangster. You're run by a bloodthirsty mobster. The Nazis had to stop that campaign because his approval rating went up. (laughs) People went, yes, (laughs) he is crazy. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, he was the right man at the right time, which is why uh, he actually was voted out of office before the war was even over because they knew they were going to win. And they're like, yeah, you're a little too crazy for peacetime. So bye. (laughs) And then when he came back in the 50s, it didn't work. Um. It's not all good. He was, quite frankly, rather racist. Uh, And because of that, he's not very popular in India or the subcontinent, and nor should he be. But, you know, uh, he was human, and humans have their faults, and it's not a good thing, but it is what it is. It's just a fact. Uh, But he was just a human quote machine. My favorite was, I sleep very little, I drink a great deal, and I smoke cigar after cigar after cigar. And that is what keeps me in 200% form. (laughs) And he also, you know, the V for victory, that was him. Uh, Of course, you had to turn it around because over in England, two fingers backwards is up your ass. Yeah. And the first couple times, uh, there's very... the BBC, of course, was government-run, so there was massive censorship. But if you look hard enough, you could find him. The first couple of photographs, he has it the wrong way, and then someone pulled him aside and said, Mr. Prime Minister, no. <laughs> Just, you're, you're flipping off the Nazis, which is cool, but no. no. <laughs> but I would just love to talk history. He wrote a fabulous history of the Roman Empire. He wrote a fabulous history of England. He wrote his own memoirs. You know, he's... Flat out said, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. And he did. That's very good. A glass of Christian Brothers, a cigar, and just 15 minutes, and I would be a little kid. (laughs) What about you? Who's your first? Uh, My first is, uh, so I I restricted myself to rules as well, but my rules were um, that I could only pick one person from each category of media that I love. Okay, uh, and therefore, uh, two of my people are still alive today. Uh, so this might just be wishful thinking, honestly. Uh, but the first one uh, is uh, an author. He penned my favorite book of all times. He was a uh, a great mathematician and logician, uh, just an all around amazing person. And that is Lewis Carroll. Yes, uh, I I my favorite book. It's still to this day is uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Uh, I mean, are you surprised, Mark? Follow the White Rabbit. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, between that and you know the wings on the bottle, I just this has just been a, a whole episode of you being so out of character. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I, I mean, I loved it as a little kid. I loved reading. Um, uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. Uh, and there's just layers to these books. And uh, uh, slightly slightly adjacent, there's a, a wonderful uh, young adult book called The View from Saturday uh, that kind of, 
there's a quote from that book about Lewis Carroll's work that just kind of cemented in me the kind of person I wanted to be and why Lewis Carroll is my favorite author. And, uh, you know, the, these two parents of these, like, wonderful children are talking about uh, their kids and, and why it's important to be a kid and why, you know, this other team in the book lost some sort of, like, spelling bee thing or or it was like some trivia thing. And they said that the the reason why the other team lost is because they, they spent all their time reading all of these academic books and all of these encyclopedias, but they never bothered going through the looking glass. And, you know, it was all... That's like a, fantastic, y- yeah. actually. Uh, and it's... Uh, if, if you are looking for an absolutely fantastic young adult book, check out The View from Saturday. Uh, I, I think its lessons still apply today. But the whole concept was don't spend your life toiling away under adult pursuits and forget to stop and, and smell the roses and appreciate being a child. And so as a kid, that really resonated with me. And I can't tell you how many times I have read uh, Wonderland and Looking Glass. Um, I actually, the, the, my, one of my favorite books in my, my book collection is a Franklin Library's 100 Best Books uh, leather-bound edition of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I, I love it. It's small, it's gold-gilded, it's wonderful. Uh, later in life, when I started studying computing and logic and, and mathematics and philosophy, I found that uh, Lewis Carroll was first a mathematician and a logician, and he specialized in symbolic logic, which is an absolutely fantastic field, and it's uh, if you ever get a chance to get into it, uh, he wrote another two books. Uh, he wrote many, many, many works, but uh, my four favorite works by him are the two previously mentioned, and he wrote a book called Symbolic Logic and a follow-up called The Game of Logic. And uh, those books are fascinating. You can get them pretty much anywhere. But, you know, it, he was a mathematician, and he worked wonderfully in in his medium. And then when he wrote Wonderland and Looking Glass, it, they are literally thought experiments in symbolic logic. You know, all of the, the dichotomies and the juxtapositions and, you know, Tweedledee and Tweedledum and, and all of the fairy tales that kind of weave their way through, they're all symbolic in some way. And it's it gave me a secondary appreciation for uh, the, the, the two books. And uh, if you've ever read the Jabberwocky, uh, which is a poem in, I believe, uh, Into the Looking Glass. Uh, The Jabberwocky is a poem with like 50 nonsense words that he just came up with. And uh, it's actually his ultimate thought experiment into symbolic logic. It's not just a nonsense poem. Because if you read the Jabberwocky and I read the Jabberwocky and then we describe the imagery from the Jabberwocky, there are key elements that we will both agree on because of the, sh- the shape of the words and the sounds that the words make. Okay. It, it's fascinating. Like, like when, when I say, like, the Bandersnatch, most people have a, a kind of image in their head of, of something feline with teeth something vaguely threatening and gnashy. And there's, I mean, the ba- Bandersnatch means nothing. I mean, we've seen it 
in, you know, I have a number of different media at this point, but, but back when the, the Jabberwocky was, you know, first written, these words meant nothing. And we could all kind of come to a, like a colloquial thought pattern of what the, the creatures and characters in these books looked like and represented. So I gained a newfound appreciation for uh, his fictional works after having understood just how deeply rooted his writing was in mathematics. So I think he would just be an utterly fascinating... I mean, the mind that would come up with Wonderland, but also like being so sharp with logic and, and reason and, and mathematics, I think that dude could drink me under the table and it would be a fantastic time. Yeah, I mean, and and that's that wasn't one of my rules going in, but I think that's a a great rule, you know. And it, who, can any of these people just bury you? Yeah, and you'd still have fun. Yeah, exactly. So, what's your number two? Well, my number two was another one that you know just popped in my head immediately, and uh, it's a little bit earlier. We're, we're, we're still going war, but we're going a war before. We're going World War One, and then uh, the interwar years, or as Churchill called them, his wilderness years. <laughs> uh, and this is Tazio Giorgio Nuvolare, probably Italy's greatest racing driver. Oh, okay. I had literally never heard of this person. <laughs> now I know why. Well, I guarantee you, though, you know what he looked like roughly, and I'll explain why. Uh, so, you know, early on in the 19-teens, uh, Tazio started racing motorcycles, which a lot of people, early pre-war, and in racing and in cars, anytime you say pre-war, it's pre-World War II. Uh, so, as I keep throwing that around, that's what that means. Uh, he was born in 1892. He started racing motorcycles in the 19-teens because they were cheaper. They were easier to get. They were more common. I mean, cars back then were uber uber expensive you know racing was even more expensive so you started off on bike bikes oftentimes pedal bikes then you went to motorcycles then hopefully you got picked up by one of the big car companies uh you know he won a lot of uh, italian national championships he won reliability trials which was a big thing early on you know it wasn't just how fast something could go it was you know what crazy terrain it could go over uh, how long it could run yeah, he was drafted in World War One in the Italian Army, and they made him an ambulance driver, and that didn't last because he was psychotic. Uh, he terrified everyone that he drove with. Uh, they're like, you're not a racer anymore. This is a war zone. Slow the hell down. Uh, and he was discharged uh, not very long after because he just scared the living shit out of everybody that he drove. Uh, 1925, he got his first test with Alfa Romero. <clears throat> which at the time was one of the big, bad uh, car companies. You know, they're just a subdivision of Ferrari now. But back then, they were, they were the bee's knees. And so that started a very long racing career into the uh, late 20s and into the 30s. And here's the thing that's going to make DJ pop. I love Tazio because he is... Uh, he was nuts. He didn't care. He would either win or crash. <laughs> oh, no. uh, um, or sometimes both. <laughs> uh, 
he had a test with Alfa Romero. He he uh, had the gearbox seize. He had the car roll. And you have to understand the cars at this time were very thin sheet metal bodies you could punch through. You're surrounded on three sides by massive but frail gas tanks. You know, you're literally sitting on 60, 70 gallons of gasoline. So they're rolling napalm ball, bombs. They were front-engined, and the dry shaft oftentimes came through the cockpit. So it is spinning just a few uh, inches below a man's most sensitive regions in between your legs. <laughs> uh, yada, yada, yada. No roll bars, no seat belts, no Nomex, nothing like that. So he had a particularly bad accident with his Alfa Romero. He broke his back. And they pulled him out of the car. They took him to the doctors. They put him in what is described as a full body cast. Six days later, he had his mechanics tape a pillow to his stomach. And he entered a motorcycle race. And he won. And it was so bad that on the grid, he had to take a penalty because he had to get a push start. He couldn't actually kickstart the bike. His mechanics had to pick him, start the bike, keep it running, pick him up, put him on the bike and send him away. <laughs> he went ripping through the field. He won. And then on the slowing down lap, his mechanics were actually there to catch the bike as it rolled, stop it, and then pick him up and take him off. Wow. Uh and this was a recurring theme. In uh, Later on, in 1934, he was running a, a Grand Prix car race at the Avis Ring. Uh, A-V-U-S. It's a big, long German acronym that I don't remember what it stands for. But Avis was insane. It literally is was two stretches of the Autobahn connected with banked turns. And when I say bank turns, I don't mean like what you have at Daytona or Talladega this year, which is still, which are still crazy. No, the uh, one curve at Avis literally was named the Wall of Death. Uh, pretty much just vertical, no wall at the top. You could go right over. Wow! And he drove that race in a with a broken leg, his whole leg, hip all the way down to the ankle, in a cast. And, of course, these were cars with manual gearboxes, manual steering, manual brakes. You needed all of your freaking appendages on the best day to win at Avis. Uh, and he did. And so there was a quote uh, by Earl Howe, who was one of his contemporaries. Let any, say who, let any who say that it was foolhardy at least be honest and admit that it was one of the finest exhibitions of pluck and grit ever seen. By such men are victories won. <laughs> Uh, later on, he drove for the auto union team, uh, which was a big eh, Nazi funded motor racing venture. Hitler loved, uh, car racing. And this actually was an interesting case of if you can't beat them, join them because earlier on in the thirties, uh, at the giant Nürburgring, which is a huge racetrack that's still there, but it was built by the Nazi party. Uh, Nuvolari won what's called the impossible victory. He was racing a private Alfa Romero that he built and maintained himself and beat all the factory Nazi-funded German teams in Germany, in front of Hitler, and in front of 300,000 people. And uh, basically, it kind of was the racing version of Jesse Owens. There wasn't anything racial involved, but it was the same sort of, eh, snubbing your nose at the Nazis. Uh, you know, we have this best technology, we have these best cars. No, you don't. A short little man from Mantua, Italy just kicked your ass. 
So after that, he got signed by uh, Auto Union, and that's really where the downhill kind of began because Auto Union, being with the Nazis, had access to Nazi technology. They were playing with eh, fuel blends, rocket fuel, high test, leaded gas, yada, yada, yada. So you often read race reports of Tazio starting the race because the exhausts were just funneled right into the cockpit because, you know, fuck driver comfort. <laughs> uh, starting the race with a wet washcloth around his face, it would make him cough so bad during the race he would begin to cough up blood. And during the pit stops, they would change four tires and swap out his bloody rag for a fresh rag. <laughs> so needless to say, uh, he got very sick. Uh, he was older and sickly. He was older anyway, so he wouldn't have been drafted for World War II, but he was sickly. He tried to make a comeback after the war when proper Formula One started and the World Championship started. Uh, he had a series of strokes. He was never really the same. Uh, but he is widely considered to be the greatest pre-war racing driver. And half of the town of Mantua came out to his funeral. He laid in state in Mantua, Italy, and 55,000 people went past his coffin in 1954, which is kind of cool. And I said, you know, you have no doubt what he looks like. You know what he raced every, what he wore every single time he raced? Goggles. Well, he wore goggles, but he wore a blue and white polo shirt with a yellow ascot. Huh. You know who else wears that? No. Speed Racer. Oh. so Where do you think they got that from? Yeah, that's, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I get what you're laying down. Uh, so I would love to have a glass of vino with Tazio and just talk about La Machina, La Machina Corsa, the racing car. And he could probably tell me more things in five minutes than I've learned my entire life being around <laughs> racing. That's amazing. All right, hit me with your second. All right. Uh, I realize that as I'm looking at my list, I think all of mine are just a little bit crazy, but some of yours are too, so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So <clears throat> my second one is still alive, uh, last time I checked, uh, and uh, she is a UK electronic musician. Uh, her name is Imogen Heap, and I, I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but... Uh, I have, actually, believe it or not. Awesome. Uh, she's just one of my all-time favorite musicians. I, I'm slowly yet surely collecting her discography on vinyl. Um and I discovered her back in college uh, when she teamed up with uh, producer Guy Sigworth on a project where I think they just called it Fru Fru, uh, F R O U twice. Um, but the album is amazing. It's called Details. It's got some really great uh, bangers on it, like Must Be Dreaming. And uh, she's just kind of prolific she's got a lot of music out there um her albums uh spark and uh ellipse are both really 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 good Uh, my personal favorite track of hers is called not now but soon and she does these crazy things with music uh in not now but soon she uh returned like after getting successful she bought her um old family home and as they were renovating it, she went and recorded sounds from around the house. Like, she recorded herself running around the inside of the house, and it was perfect. Uh, she didn't have to edit it. Like, the sound of her feet hitting stone 
was the perfect drum beat for the song. So she just did all of these crazy things, like, uh, she, and she only mixed actual sounds into it. Uh, and that's, it's a great song. Uh, most people would know her from her single uh, Hide and Seek, which is literally just her voice layered over itself um, with some really interesting electronic stuff going on. Uh, but she's amazing. Uh, and I just, uh, on top of all the music stuff, she's done some really crazy tech things as well. Um, she created these uh, gloves that can be used, I think they're called the Mimu gloves, where they can be used to actually mix sound in a 3D space. So the gloves are the instrument that she uses to mix sounds, and she created her song Me the Machine just using the gloves. Uh, it's a great song. Uh, she also invested in, I, I don't rem remember what it's called, but it's a new music distribution network uh, where artists and, and fans can collaborate. And it's it, like it uses blockchain technology, like it's the same stuff that cryptocurrency is built off of. Uh, so it's just some really amazing tech that she uses in her music, and she's just fantastic. So I imagine just picking her brain for five minutes on the tech she uses will, again, you know, kind of like you and Tazio would, would teach me so much about tech, it would be a little bit insane. Yeah, anytime you talk to a virtuoso like that, you just sit there and go, oh. Because mm -hmm. it's like a whole other level just gets opened. Yeah, yeah, I, I think... Uh, she's just got her head around tech and electronic music in a way that makes it really accessible and wonderful. Um, I, I know electronic music kind of has this this rap for being kind of cold and unfeeling. And I feel like Imogen Heap was the first artist I really encountered that made electronica like warm and inviting in a way that I didn't really find again until like the Postal Service or the title, you know, some of those other electronic bands I love. But, okay. yeah, Imogen Heap. Uh, Mark, I'm a Look her up on SoundCloud, too. Go to Nuno's first. Yeah, go to Nuno's first. Um, Mark, I'm, I'm looking at the sheet. I'm a little bit worried by, by what I'm seeing here. All right, I mean, you know, we can't all have happy-go-lucky people. They're... Just because someone isn't necessarily a good person, although it's... Or is considered by at least half this podcast to be a very, very, very bad person. It still doesn't mean you wouldn't want to talk to them necessarily. <laughs> okay, so build we're your gonna case. Get, we're going to get a little controversial here. And just I want you all to bear with me on this one because there's going to be a little shock value. The third person, and again, this is one of the by the criteria, just popped in my head. Uh, and we're going later on now, we're going into the 60s and the 70s. The Reverend James Warren Jones, or Jim Jones, if you prefer. Ugh. Now, we're going to get a few things out of the way right in the beginning. It wasn't Kool-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid. Uh -huh. yeah, yes, that's important. <laughs> it's one of my pet peeves. Uh, Jim Jones is a fascinating character, and I'm going to explain why. Historians often divide his life into at least two, if not three, sections. Uh, 
and during the first and even into the second, he actually was a genuinely good person. He was a racial integrationist in the 60s, which was insanely controversial and got him uh, heat both from the government and from individuals. He was a, a supporter of communism openly in the 60s. 50s and 60s, was hassled by McCarthy, was on every government watch list there was, uh, didn't care, was very open about his beliefs. He was a major supporter of the poor, not just the African-American poor, but uh, white poor, Asian poor, when they moved out to San Francisco, you name it. They genuinely did a lot of good. Uh, they had the the free restaurant, which was basically a soup kitchen, but they modeled it as a restaurant where you paid what you could. He also was very good at branding. You know, he wore the suits with the uh, uh, priest collar, uh, aviator sunglasses, although that was to hide a drug addiction. Uh, even the name, it was the People's Temple, but there was no apostrophe in the name. Do you know why, DJ? No. Because apostrophes indicate possession, and no one owned the people's temple. It was everyone's. Ah, interesting. Just interesting things like that. And when they went to Guyana, when they went to Jonestown, and there was the mass suicide, just under a 1,000 people died. And now when you hear... Uh, when, when, when you read about it or when you hear about it, especially on TV now, there's a movement to not call it a mass suicide, not call it a ritual suicide. There is a movement that, you know, these people didn't want to be there. They didn't uh, want to commit suicide. They tried to get away. They were killed. Some were. Uh, from the best estimates we can ascertain, it was between 250 and 300 uh, tried not to go along with it. But what that means is about 700 people willingly went. And I want to sit and talk to the man who was a biblical scholar. I want to sit and talk to the man who was a community advocate and try to figure out what went wrong, try to figure out what snapped. Uh, Jim Jones was paranoid. Uh, part of that was drugs. Part of that was just him. So he recorded everything. There were hours and hours and hours of Jim Jones recordings as part of the uh, Jonestown Forgiveness Project, Jonestown Reclamation Project. They're all online. They're all free use. I've listened to tons of them. And even though you know it's coming, even though you know how the story ends, when you listen to some of those early tapes, you're like, there ain't no way it's the same person. So I would like to sit down with him. And depending on what version of Jim Jones we get, he may be a teetotaler. He didn't start drinking until later on. Uh, but I would like to sit down and have a few drinks and just try to figure out how something that started so good could go so bad and just to see some of the charisma. charisma. And, and, you know, that's, that's a controversial opinion, but the man had charisma. You can't argue it. To make people, especially later on, it wasn't the majority were poor people, but it wasn't everyone was poor. He had doctors in Jonestown. There were lawyers in Jonestown. There were businessmen in Jonestown. To have people join him, willingly sign over everything they own, uh, 
let the men let him sleep with their wives. The women let them sleep with his husbands. He slept with everybody. He didn't discriminate. Uh, he must have had charisma. These were educated people. Uh, they were they weren't brainwashed. You know, some of them were looking for an easy way out. Some of them weren't. So there must be something there. And I would just want to see what it was because we don't really know. We only know so much. And I want to know the last piece. And it's not happy. It's not a good thing. I'm not going to sit here and say he was a good man overall. He was a good man for a good portion of his life. And then he went south really fast and killed a thousand people. I mean, even though it was suicide, he told them to do it. Uh, so I'm not going to sit here and condone him, but I, I would like to study him because it's, I mean, what do they call them now? Domestic terrorists. I mean, he was born and bred in Indianapolis. You know, it's not your, not what you think of when you think of a mass murderer. Yeah. So that's my third. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it ends bad, but you know. <laughs> but it would be worth a whiskey along the way. I would think so, you know, because I mean, and that's, that's the problem with it is you're a historian. So you're looking at the facts and you're looking at the way it goes and you're like, you know, these people had to have known that this was a cult. These people had to have known that something bad was going to happen yet. They went along with it. So obviously there was something else. There was something that the papers, that the facts, that even the recordings don't get across. Well, I mean, there's something to be said for the, the thought of the people must have known as kind of, you know, your own defense mechanism, right? Like, we don't right. want to believe that we could be in that position. No. I mean, you want to sit here and say, oh, pff, I would have figured it out. But would we have? Yeah. Yeah, fair. But all right, lighten us up. All End right. us on a good note. So my last one, uh, I, so I went author, uh, I went uh, musician, and then I went playwright. So this last one uh, is still very much alive uh, and is Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, and hey, for, I know him. For, for those of you who don't know, uh, he is the beautiful mind behind uh, In the Heights and Hamilton. Uh, he's an absolutely, uh, just, uh, just an absolutely genius of a person. Um, I, I, you know, I, if musicals aren't your thing, feel free to pass by, but... Uh, if you've not heard the Hamilton soundtrack yet, I mean, get off your ass. It's so good. Uh, Hamilton is great as a piece of art, but I must throw my usual fuddy-duddy disclaimer. It's not really a great piece of history. Yeah, but it's not supposed to be. <laughs> no, you're right. But use that as a gateway. Watch Hamilton first, then I can recommend you some biographies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... Uh, there's definitely, I mean, you can't encapsulate an entire man's life in a single musical, and there's definitely parts that are embellished, And but who the fuck cares? It's musical theater. It's not meant to be, you know, a historical documentary. And um, if you're going to pick a person, Hamilton's a pretty fucking interesting person to pick. He is, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I just, I, I for me, I, I mean, everybody knows Hamilton, but for me, I am just a, an enormous fan of In the Heights as well. Um, I, I, I know nothing about what, what life in Washington Heights would be like. I did not, you know, growing up, uh, you know, Hispanic in any way or, you know, Latinx in any way is not my journey. And I find it just kind of fascinating. I, I really like appreciating the art and, uh, I, 
have always loved Lin-Manuel Miranda for his art. Uh, and fairly recently, I in the last couple of years, I found out he's also weirdly a secret super fan of uh, a podcast family known as the McElroys. And I'm not going to plug the McElroys too much here because, you know. They don't need it. Yeah, they definitely don't need it. Uh, but c- come to find out, he's just very much involved with the McElroys and all of their brand of products and shows up in random places in their podcasts and uh, shows up for their yearly holiday shows in, in uh, West Virginia. And just, uh, like, I missed him, uh, like, one stop away. Like, I think he was the special guest in New York, and I went to the Boston live show. Um, so, like, he just keeps showing up in this, this weird area of fandom, and I feel like being able to have a drink with the playwright Lin-Manuel Miranda would be intimidating. But having a drink with the uh, with Lin, the fourth brother of the McElroy podcast <laughs> empire, would be much less intimidating. And I think we could have uh, just a good old party. And, you know, I think we can make that happen. So, Lin, on behalf of the Wit and Whiskey, I'm going to offer you an open invite. Yeah, Whenever you want to come on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'll even supply the whiskey, Lynn. Yes, we will. So you know, or what? You know, whatever. You know, we we can we could be the wit and whatever that week. Yeah, yeah, we we can be the wit and rum or the wit and, and vodka. It's fine. Uh, so so they, on behalf of DJ, I'm going to invite you on the show whenever you want. Just again, DM us. You know, wit and whiskeycast gmail Facebook, Instagram, all those places. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, but those are my three. Um, o- only one of them is dead, and none of them are as um, sobering as some of Mark's picks. But yeah, I mean, you know, none of mine. Well, I mean, Churchill, even though he got voted out the second time, he he was writing books and he coined the Iron Curtain speech and the whole nine yards. So he had a good end. Tazio died bitter and alone, and we Jonestown was well Jonestown. So you yeah. know. I, I, what can I say? If you go on my Steam profile, my number one recommendation is villain protagonist. Nice. I, I you know, I have a type. <laughs> you do. You very much do. Because a villain has to be charismatic. An uncharismatic villain is just lame. See, I, I love this thread, and at some point, we're going to have to do sidekicks and villains and whiskey. I'd be game for that. Because neither of us particularly dives for the main character. No. No, and I think that's because, at least for me, I mean, that might be why I hate Superman so much. He doesn't have charisma. He's boring. And I mean, yes, that is his persona. He he picked Clark Kent. He fashioned Clark Kent. He fashioned, you know, boring newsreader. But he's dull. And Batman's just depressing. <laughs> I, I feel like there is something so deliciously nerd-rebellious about refusing to be taken in by the main character. Yeah, and I mean, I, I always was difficult, so... Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe there is something to that. You know, I never got into drugs. I never got into crazy drinking when I was underage. I... I never joyrided around town, but by God, did I prefer Robin over Batman. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think, I mean, I know this isn't the topic, but I'm just trying to think off the top of my head quickly one main character that I super got into. I'm sure there's one or two, but man, I'm drawn blank. I was really into Wolverine when I was very young. See, I like Gambit. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, nowadays I prefer Angel and Nightcrawler, but this is not a comics episode. I mean, well, I like Leonardo. And I mean, I guess he in the cartoon, he was the main turtle, right? I mean, yep, you definitely like that cardboard milksop of a turtle. He is, the, I mean, as an adult, I totally like Raphael more. <laughs> but as a kid, Leo was my boy. So, yeah, okay, there's one. I got one. I have a type two, and I call them the bunny character. So I like. So we might have to do. We might have to do villains and sidekicks and whiskey. That could be one of our season three episodes. And I don't know when we're going to do it, but I, DJ and I have been working on a outline for a two parter on uh, one of the most fascinating. And it's a bad pun, but with some of the shit that went on, sobering times in American history, mm-hmm. prohibition. Yeah, yeah, we I think we've got some really interesting stuff for prohibition because there's the historical side of prohibition, but there's also what prohibition did to bar and cocktail culture and how it set bar and cocktail culture back and and like the, a century. Yeah. And the way like the ways it influenced bar tooling, the way it in, influenced bar menus and bar design, how it um how bad liquor was back then. So they came up with all of these really weird cocktail techniques that took us a really long time to get over. So yeah, no, I, I think season three will finally dive into prohibition and whiskey. Yeah. I don't know if that's how we're, if we're going to start off or not, but that's definitely going to be in the, the first chunk of episodes as it comes out. Yeah. And you know, we could definitely talk about bar culture and then we could talk about just some of the, uh, the main players, good, bad, and indifferent, because, I mean, Prohibition is really the closest time we've ever gotten to having legitimate comic supervillains. Oh, yeah. Um, and we even had our own Arkham Asylum. We even had Alcatraz. Yeah. So, you know what I learned this week that I did not know? What? Alcatraz uh, was a huge uh, pelican sanctuary before we took it over, and it actually, that actually means pelican. Alcatraz means pelican. I think I weirdly knew that. Like, I think there was, like, a hundred facts about Alcatraz when I was a kid, and I think I read it because I was a nerd. It is, like, so not intimidating now that I know that. Yeah. yeah. Mark. But all right. Oh, I have to do the outro. I have yeah. to end the season. Oh, take God. Out, buddy. Oh, well, that is it, not just for this episode, but for this season. Uh, fear not, even though we're going to be taking a little break from full episodes, we are going to have some trailers coming at you, so there still is going to be some content coming your way. Uh, so be sure to, you know, subscribe if you haven't already, uh, we're on two dozen different varieties of places and most of them you could subscribe or follow or like, or add to your playlist or whatever they call it, depending on the site. Yeah. Uh, give us a thumbs up, give us a review. If you don't mind, that really helps us get up in the charts on different places. Uh, as we said, we're on, uh, yeah, Facebook, that's the word I'm looking for. We're on <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, uh, YouTube, SoundCloud, Gmail. It's uh, the Wit and Whiskey cast on every one of those. No H in whiskey. There is an, or no, God damn it. <laughs> I can, well, you need to do a blooper reel of just me fucking this up because yes. that would be 10 minutes long. I might. There's, there's no H in wit 
and there's an E in whiskey. <laughs> Fucking Christ. I'm going to write it on my hand starting next season. Um, do be sure to go to uh, SoundCloud in general and check out Nuno Henry Silva's. He did our intro and our outro music. We love him. Mm-hmm. Uh, go to Amazon, buy his book, uh, do all that. And, you know, hey, stick around. We got some fun things coming up. Like we said, we're going to we're gonna do uh, Prohibition. We're probably going to do Sidekicks and Villains because that's where the money is. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think we're going to maybe, maybe, we might do a few more cocktails next year. Ooh, yeah, next year, I'm next excited. season. Next season. Yeah, so, and, and I'm uh, keep your eye out on the feed for trailers because I'm going to be workshopping a new feature, the a, a new little uh, segment that we can start introducing in each episode. But we'll we'll have to see how you guys like it first. Yes, uh, I've I've seen the preview notes for that. That's going to be very good, and there may actually be an appearance from our better halves in the trailers as well. There might. Well, we'll see if we can convince them to come on. They do exist. We swear. Yeah, we uh, we aren't telling tales from school. No, well, not about this anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So, hey, until next season, I'm Mark Rossetti Jr. I'm DJ Gagnon. Salud. Cheers.